I don't know about you, but I remember times in my life, particularly when I was in my mid-twenties, I just didn't know if it was worth it anymore, if it was worth following Jesus. I had gone through some deep issues with church, unanswered prayer, some confusions, and I doubted some of the things about my faith, and I just didn't know, is this worth it? Circumstances were not working out what I thought they would be. And I did get to the place of why am I following Jesus? Am I going to give up? And many of my friends had given up following Jesus. And I went through that seeking and searching time, and maybe you have as well, or maybe you are today, going, am I still going to follow Jesus? My dreams really haven't worked out the way I thought. Not even my dreams, but just relationship hopes or vocational desires or just other circumstances in my life. This aren't going the way I thought they'd go if I followed Jesus. Am I still going to follow him? And if you've ever asked that question like I have, well, you're in good company because the early church were asking this question too. Around AD 60, around there, they were being viciously persecuted by the Roman emperor. I mean, viciously persecuted. They were being not only kind of losing their livelihood, not only losing maybe their homes or their businesses, but many of them were being tortured and martyred for their faith. And I don't know about you, but I'm sure many of them, like maybe me, would have been going, is this worth it? The circumstances are not in my favor right now. And in fact, I may lose my life. Am I still going to follow Jesus? And it was into this tension that Mark wrote his biography of Jesus. It's into these trials and traumas of the early church that Mark decided to write his biography of Jesus so that he could strengthen the faith of those who were contemplating following Jesus to their own cross, their own death. So that's why as we're looking at Mark's gospel together, we want to consider what does it mean to follow Jesus when the circumstances are not in our favor. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I did a bit of an overview of Mark's gospel. Many were away at Thanksgiving and I spoke for about 10 hours on Mark's gospel if you were here. And we did a bit of an overview. And I'm going to finish that this morning because Last time we just saw a bit of it, but we want to zoom out and go, look at how Mark constructs his gospel in order to strengthen the faith of a persecuted church. Just a bit of background for those who don't know who weren't here. Uh, Mark wrote the gospel. He is not a disciple of Jesus, one of the 12. He's an early follower of Jesus, but he was good friends with and worked for Peter, who was one of the disciples. And so Mark his gospel, his biography was assembling and writing down the eyewitness accounts of the Apostle Peter. He did it around AD 60 to 70 to strengthen the faith of the persecuted church. And he did this in a very clever way. What he did was he assembled certain of the stories of Jesus and picked some, didn't pick others, in order to do two things, in order to strengthen the faith of the early church in two particular ways. And he designed his gospel around answering these two questions, around driving these two themes home. In fact, he structured his gospel around these two main messages. From chapter 1 through chapter 16, as you'll see on the screen here, there was really two halves to the book. 
The first half is, if you were here two weeks ago, we saw for eight chapters, he is answering the question, who is Jesus? And when you're suffering, remember who Jesus is. He's not just a wise man. He's not just a religious teacher. He is Yahweh himself who's come to be with us. But the second half of the book picks up in chapter eight and drives home a second theme, which is remember why Jesus came, that Yahweh, God, the one true God, did not take on flesh just for funsies, right? He didn't come just to go, I can do this. He came for a particular reason. And this is what we see as we're gonna look at this morning, why Jesus came, that in the midst of all, do I follow him? Why should I follow him? At the anchor of that, the biggest question of your life is, why do I follow Jesus? And Mark wants to drop that anchor in their heart and in your heart. This is why Jesus came. And at the very end, we see the last chapter is this remarkable ending of Mark's gospel where women go to the empty tomb and they see the tomb is empty and they leave afraid and confused and Mark's ending is purposeful to ask the question of us with whatever circumstances you're facing, with whatever questions or confusion, are you going to move forward in fear and abandon Jesus or are you going to follow him with faith? And whether you follow him is down to whether you see who Jesus is and why he came. And Mark does this in a very clever way. The second act of Mark where he's saying, look, remember who Jesus is. Remember why you're following him. He does this in a very clever way. And that is, he summarizes his thesis in chapter eight, nine, and 10, and then explains it for the rest of the book. And his thesis of why Jesus came is, this, is done through this very clever literary device, which theologians called a Mark and Sandwich. It's a very strange name, I know. But throughout Mark's gospel, Mark does this clever literary device to emphasize something of Jesus. It's called a Mark and Sandwich. What does that mean? Well, in a sandwich, you've got three layers, right? You've got the two buns, and then you've got the meat in the middle or the impossible meat, whichever is your favorite. And Mark, in order to emphasize the meat in the sandwich, sandwiches the real message between something that only add to the center. So what does this mean for Mark here? Well, in Mark chapter eight, Mark says, midway through Mark's gospel, hang on, not yet, uh, not yet, not yet, there you go. <laughs> In Mark chapter eight, he says, he recounts Jesus saying to his, to his disciples, you don't see why I'm here. You fail to see why I'm here. And if you don't see why I'm here, the implication is you'll never follow me through the tough things of life. When the going gets tough, you will abandon me unless you really see why I have come. And so then he creates this sandwich. Mark creates this sandwich. And the bun of the sandwich, the top layer and the bottom layer, are two miracles of blind men recovering their sight. Jesus, in chapter 8, heals a blind man. And Jesus, again, heals a blind man in chapter 10. These are the buns, or the bun, the top and the bottom of the bun. And straight away, Mark is going, Jesus gave sight to two men. And the question in the middle, as Jesus teaches, is do you see why Jesus came? Do you see 
Next slide. Do you see why Jesus came? The story of the blind man in chapter 8 is the well-known story of Jesus going to a blind man and doing something that we rarely do in our prayer ministry team when we're praying for you. Uh, He spat on someone's eye, right? (laughs) He spits in the guy's eye as a form of, I don't know. Uh, But anyway, he spits in his eye. The mystery of Jesus. Have you ever thought, what will you ask Jesus when you see him face to face? That's my question. Why on earth did you phlegm in this guy's eye? But anyway, after doing that and praying for him, the guy can see, but only in parts. Remember, he says, look, it's still kind of blurry. So Jesus prays again, and he can see fully. Peter uses this miracle not just to show that Jesus heals, but to give an insight into what's about to happen, which is the disciples don't quite see why Jesus came. They're struggling to, it's blurred. And at the very end, blind Bartimaeus in chapter 10, another story of a man who is blind. And we see there, he sees Jesus and his only response is to immediately get up and follow him. When you see why Jesus came, No matter what you face, you will follow him. And in the middle, Jesus then is trying again and again and again for the disciples to see why he came. He does this in a very plain and obvious manner. Three times, Jesus says the same thing to his disciples. This is why I have come. And teaches a bit about it. Each time, the disciples don't get it. They have blurred vision. Three times he says, this is why I've come. Three times they don't get it. So eventually, just before the healing of the blind man, just before we get to the seconds bun, sandwich, layer, Jesus finishes with this big finish, this big finale. This is why I have come. And the question that we have as we follow Jesus through all sorts of circumstances, as we maybe face disappointments, unfulfilled dreams, unanswered prayers, maybe a diagnostic which is just really strong, whatever it is, whether you follow him or not through those difficult circumstances is down to, do you really see why Jesus came? So let's read in Mark chapter eight. This, the first time Jesus says, this is why I have come. I'm gonna read in Mark chapter eight, immediately after the first miracle, it says this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus says, this is why I've come, and Peter doesn't get it. This is why I've come, but Peter doesn't get it. He says very clearly, this is why I've come, and that sentence is modified throughout the whole thing by the word must. He says, I have come because I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. I must rise again. This is very strange for any religious leader or any leader because we hope not to suffer. We hope not to be rejected. We hope not to be killed. But Jesus says, no, 
This is why I came. My life is so that I can die a certain death and rise again. I have come to die. The whole point of Yahweh becoming flesh is not simply to reveal who God is, is not simply to teach this amazing teaching about the ways of God, but he says, the fundamental reason I have come is for my death, to voluntarily go to Jerusalem and die. Now, Peter, maybe like many of us are thinking, that's ridiculous. This is absolutely absurd. Why would you be born in order to die? And so Peter took him aside and rebuked him and went, you're crazy. This is actually the opposite of what we want. This is the opposite of what we hoped for. The word rebuke there is the strongest possible word. It's like in your face yelling at someone. How could you? How dare you? Because for Peter, Jesus had a particular job to do, which was not to go die. In fact, death would be the failure of his mission, not the success. You see, Peter, like any first century Jew, was longing for a new king, like the old great kings of the Old Testament, David and others, that this king would come and actually free Israel from their Roman oppressors and bring back the good times. They were under the crushing, the crushing rule of an occupied force called Rome. And they were longing to be free. And so the king, a new Messiah, was to come and their hopes would be again, okay, Jesus, let's do this. You seem to have a lot of authority. You seem to have God's blessing on your life. Let's do this. Let's get some horses. Let's get some people. Let's ride into Jerusalem. Let's overthrow the hypocrisy of the temple courts. Let's get rid of, the, of Herod, who's kind of like the Roman king around here. And then once we've done that, let's get some more and let's ride to Rome and let's defeat our Roman oppressors. That's what we want Jesus to do. That's what we're hoping, that's what we long for, is Jesus to come and bring us out of our circumstantial problems into our circumstantial wealth. And he goes, this is what I want you to do for me. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Peter, you're acting like Satan. You have no idea of the things of God. You're only concerned of the things of man. I mean, Satan there, he's not literally calling Peter, I think you are Satan. But Satan is is the, the noun that describes what the demonic forces in the world do, which is to deceive us and tempt us away from the things of God. He says, look, you're trying to tempt me towards comfort, you're trying to tempt me towards these other things. Whereas I've actually come to do something vastly different to that. Look, Peter, I've come to something more deeper, far more deeper than that. He actually says to Peter, he says, look, you're acting like Satan. And in fact, he says, get behind me. Which is like a play on words of that invitation that Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. And to follow someone is to get behind them. He says, look, get behind me, Peter, because you're trying to impose your agenda on me. You're out of position. You're, you're, You're thinking that I am the one who is to follow you. Get behind me, get back in line. Have you ever 
thought in your life, man, I wish Jesus would just do what I wanted him to do. Get behind. I am your God. I am your leader. There's a bigger story going on. There's a bigger battle going on. I'm not fighting Rome. I've got bigger things to do. But Peter didn't get it. Twice more, in fact, Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, this is why I've come. I must die. I must go to the cross. I must rise again. This is the battle I have come to do. But three times the disciples don't get it. In fact, there's this very comedic moment near the end of chapter 10, just before the final sandwich closes, where the disciples hear what Jesus is saying and just ignore it completely. Then in chapter 10, 35, it says this, James and John, son of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's like, oh my gosh, this is how blind they are. Then they go on and say, Jesus like, goes along with them and says, okay, all right, let's play your game. What do you want me to do for you? He said, and they said, look, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left when you're in glory. Which means, in other words, look, when we defeat Rome, when we get to the palace, when you're sitting on the throne, hey, can I be your VP? Can I be your chief of staff? This is party political game. This is election cycle right now. This is what they're playing. They think still Jesus is there to bring them back into power. So Jesus, after these three statements of what he's come to do, these three complete denials of that by the disciples, he, he brings his big finale. Look, this, guys, this is what I've come. Let me spell it out even clearer to you. The, and he ends this teaching before the healing of the blind man closes this sandwich, he gives this dramatic statement. Mark 10, 45, he says, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you get it? I've come to be a ransom. I've come to deal with a bigger problem. This is in this one verse, we can pull the thread and see the richness and the complexity of why Jesus came to die. It's all wrapped up in this word ransom. In our context today, ransom is really just used when someone gets kidnapped. I don't know if you've ever been kidnapped and someone pays a ransom, right? $100 million if you're really important uh, to get you free. But in the Old Testament, in the context of the first century, the word ransom had a much bigger meaning a much bigger concept behind it, which was whenever anybody is in captivity, a slave or a prisoner or something, someone could sacrifice something of themselves, sometimes even give their life in exchange for the freedom of that prisoner. And so Jesus is saying, there's something why I've come, there's something about my death, that the whole point of my death on the cross and in the resurrection, it is like it's a ransom. I'm gonna, I've come to give my life in my death and that what will happen on the cross will set you free. This is Jesus' diagnostic with what is wrong with humanity. He says we have been captive to certain enemies. That this world 
Although it's beautiful and made in the image of God, there's been this captivity that's come around humanity and that's restricting it and slowly dying on the inside. And Jesus, because he loved, for God so loved the world, he said, I have come that I may actually deal with this imprisonment and set you free. And the only way that this is going to be dealt with is not by trying harder, is not by being better, is actually I need to pay the price through my death and resurrection to set you free. I mean, it begs the question, doesn't it? Okay, well, what are we being held captive by? What's the problem then that Jesus had to pay a ransom? Throughout the rest of Mark's gospel and throughout all of the teachings of Jesus, we see that what he means by this is really there's three great captivities that we experience. And the cross is the ransom for each one. Sin, evil, and death. Sin, evil, and death. Jesus says that we are enslaved to sin. That sin, although I've got to be honest, I grew up, and that, that word is a bit triggering for me because it was used by you know, angry preachers making me feel bad about just trying to live. And it's taken a lot of therapy to go through that. But, uh, but really, sin is the word that the Bible uses to actually describe what is unanimously agreed whatever your worldview, that there is some kind of something wrong with the world. There is something intrinsically wrong that humanity doesn't do what it wants to do and does what it doesn't want to do. That yes, we can have great moments of love and kindness, but we can also have, at the same time, same people, great moments of greed and corruption and selfishness. That there is something in this world where we're constantly going, man, every January the 1st, we need to be better. I mean, that's the phrase, isn't it? Do better. We look at the world and we go, there's sin outside all around us in the news. Man, people need to be better. We look at what people have done to us and we go, wow, I wish people were better. But then if we're honest, we look inside and we go, well, I've got to be honest with myself. I'm also part of the problem. The Bible calls this a problem of sin, that there is something in us that we are imprisoned to. And no matter how much we try, no matter how much we improve, no matter how many resolutions, there are good things that can happen, but humanity, after thousands and thousands of years, still seems to be enslaved with this problem that separates us from God, that breaks down humanity, that keeps our world in pain, is a problem of sin. As Mark Twain wrote, everyone is a moon and has a dark side which he never shows to anyone. There's a problem. And Jesus says, I have come to be your ransom, to get the problem of sin out of the human heart. He says, look, if I deal with Rome, there's always going to be another Rome because the problem is the human heart. And I have come to set you free to set humanity free from the problem of sin, to start to give you freedom that you can start to live the way you long to live. He became our ransom. It says that he went to the cross and in some mysterious divine exchange, he took on our sin and paid the price of it. He became sin for us that we might be forgiven. 
He broke the curse of sin on the cross that we might have that curse, that imprisonment broken, that we can be set free. And it says that we're given a new heart, a new heart that is no longer slave to sin. That you can be forgiven, have a clean slate, that your sins, past, present, and future, are now on him on the cross, and that you can be free. He's dealing with the fundamental problems of humanity. I remember when this first drove home to me. I was only 18, and I remember I was at this one big summer camp for about 10,000 people. And I was in the youth camp area, but one day I snuck out of the youth camp and went to the big adult meeting, and I thought, I don't want to be with the youth anymore. So I went into the, the big adult meeting. There's about 5,000 people singing, worshipping. And they were singing a hymn, which was unusual for us because we, I was raised in a very contemporary kind of charismania kind of environment. And, and yet they were singing this hymn as I walked in. And it was that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And this whole hymn, if you know it, is talking about Jesus on the cross. And, and I was at the back of the room and I closed my eyes and started to sing this song. But it felt like the words became real and I was before Jesus at the foot of the cross. And it was in that moment I felt his love for me that he became my ransom. He took all of my sin onto him. All of my guilt onto him. All the things I'd done, past, present, and future, onto him. And I was only 18, so it's not like I've done horrendous things. But it just felt deep down. I knew that he died for me. And I remember coming to that last verse. I knew I would never be the same again. Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my life, my soul my all. I knew he died for me. But the the other enemy, of course, is not just our sin, but throughout Mark's gospel, he says, humanity, the the complexity of what's wrong with the world isn't just down to humanity. There is an invisible enemy that is also wreaking havoc. There's evil in the world. And throughout Mark's gospel, we see Jesus going to battle with demonic forces in the world. And I know in this enlightened, rationalistic environment, many of here go, oh, come on, Gary, we don't believe in that stuff. It's just now, you know, we've got better science and medical diagnostics, which is true, and I love all of that. But there is something, if you've been around long enough, particularly in this city long enough, you know that there's sometimes you come across something which is inexplicable, and there's some, imperson- some personal evil going on. We see it in the ministry of Jesus. And the ministry, the teaching of Jesus is that this is real. That together with humanity's own propensity to do stupid stuff and mess stuff up, you've got this evil force that is also, as Jesus says, seeking to steal, kill, and destroy your life. And he says, on the cross, I've come not only to set you free from the curse of sin, but to set you free from any influence of the evil one. It says that he went to the cross and on the cross he was victorious over all evil forces in the world. It's like that was the great boxing match of history and they were done and they were out. N.T. Wright, who's a great theologian, summarized all the gospels this way. He said the first and most important thing to say about the cross in the gospels is that all four gospels see Jesus' crucifixion 
as the moment when and the means by which the creator God wins the victory over all the forces of evil. I get the privilege of praying with people every week, many of whom are going through spiritual battles and we can declare over them in the name and the victorious name of Jesus. The evil forces, evil one has no authority over your life because of what Jesus has done on the cross. He is victorious. This is why we follow him. And then thirdly, Mark points to not only victory on the cross over sin, victory on the cross over evil, but victory through the cross and resurrection over our enemy of death itself. The women go to the tomb near the end of the gospel and they go to where they think Jesus is buried and he's not there. There's an angel there who says he's not here. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive. Death could not defeat him. And our anchor for following Jesus, despite sometimes the circumstances seem confusing or prayers go unanswered or we're not too sure what God is doing, but we do know he bore my sin on the cross. He, he defeated the evil one on our behalf and he has defeated death that we now may live. We live in a, a kind of a bubble in Los Angeles 21st century because we, we have the luxury through all sorts of things not to think about death until it really hits us in the face. You know, we, we try and not go there. We try and do all things to avoid pain. We try and do all things to stop any... No one's having jokes and conversations about, hey, have you planned your funeral? But this is a bubble in humanity because many people across the world today face the reality of death every day. And many of you here today, because I know have actually had to face the prospect of death through a diagnostic or maybe going to see loved ones this Christmas time who are going through those same questions. And it's in these moments that we go, am I still going to follow Jesus? And it's in these moments that the early church facing martyrdom before the Roman centurion, am I going to follow Jesus even if it's my death? And it's in these moments that we remember that the tomb was empty, that even death has been defeated. Followers of Jesus are no longer even imprisoned by our great enemy, death itself. I remember when I was in my first job out of seminary in Raleigh, North Carolina, as a pastor down there, fairly new, my first year, and I've been in business for a while, but this is like brand new for me. And I remember some dear friends of mine were helping me with Ron Alpha, really committed to the church. They had three wonderful kids and they were pregnant with their fourth and lots of joy and celebration as to the arrival of their, their fourth, which was imminent. And I remember one day receiving the phone call from Manning, the husband, saying, Gay, can you come to the hospital? And I went to the hospital and walked into the hospital room and just, we wept in each other's arms together. Rennie was carrying her forth, but the young boy was dead in the womb. Stopped breathing with full term. 
And we wept and we grieved and we prayed and then we heard that she still had to go through a natural birth. This is the only way as we, she gave birth to her stillborn, full-term son. She delivered him. They invited me back into the room as we held him, took pictures, comforted and prayed. And I remember in all the grief, I was there for 36 hours with the Manning family. I remember the funeral a week later as we're all gathered in our questions of why, in our questions of what happened, in our questions of unanswered prayer, and all we could do was hang on to this is why Jesus came. As I read out those words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This is why we follow him. Now, of course, the empty tomb, the joy of the empty tomb is not just he has defeated death, but he has launched a new project to heal this world. This is Mark's great ending. With now our great enemies of sin and evil and death being defeated, we can see his kingdom come, his will be done in this world. We can see love and mercy and justice fill the streets. We can follow Jesus and see great miracles and healings. This is now the prospect. This is why we pray your kingdom come. This is why we have prayer ministry down the front. We believe now because the roots have been demolished through the cross, his new life of his resurrection can invade us even today. But we don't see the fullness of it until he returns in the future. You see, Mark wrote this gospel to us like them, knowing that we now live in this confusing times post-resurrection where the victory of Jesus is being rolled out across the world but pre his return and so we still live in the brokenness and the pain and the unanswered prayers and in the challenges but we do so with hope because when we don't see him we know why he came we know he was our ransom we know he defeated evil and we know he rose from the grave. This is our faith. It's why at the very end of the sandwich, the blind man Bartimaeus receives his sight and all it says at the end is he could see Jesus. So he stood up and followed him. Do you see Jesus? In the midst of whatever you're going through, do you see Jesus? Do you see why he came? And do you see why no matter the future, we follow him? And even if we die, we live. Because this is why he came. Let's stand together.